Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Trey, and I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas Church. And uh, if you have no idea that I was a pastor here, that's totally fine, because uh, normally I'm in the back in the booth there, uh, running the soundboard with a lot of other really talented volunteers. Uh, but today, um, I have the honor and the joy of bringing uh, God's scripture to us in the rest of chapter uh, Genesis chapter 29 and the beginning of chapter 30. Uh, so before we get started, I just want to confess, so this is my first time preaching from the front, all right? So, uh, you know, my wife, being the wiser of the two of us, you know, really strongly advocated that I not tell any jokes, um, and so I'm not going to do that, which was a relief because I don't know any good ones. And, uh, you know, if in my inexperience, uh, you know, I really confuse or muddle through this, uh, you know, this sermon today, um, just after the gathering, you know, just it's totally right and, and godly to go ahead and talk to Ryan and have him explain everything again that I am preaching today. Um, so, uh, with that little jibe out of the way, go ahead and get your Bibles out and go to Genesis chapter 29, verse 31. Um, if you don't have a Bible this morning, don't worry, we have you covered. There's uh, some hardbound uh, Bibles in the back of the room. And if you don't actually own a Bible, uh, just go ahead and take that home with you. Uh, you know, consider that our gift to you. So, um, before we start reading, um, before the scripture comes up on the screen, I'll just do a brief recap, because um, the last few weeks, we've been in this story about Jacob, right, and how God's moving in Jacob's life. Uh, and if you've been with us, um, you'd know that uh, Jacob's not a good dude. He is uh, pretty dastardly, you know, to use like a 1900s term. Um, you know, I, I kind of imagine Jacob like twirling a mustache half the time because uh, he's always trying to get ahead uh, to take on his own terms things that uh, God has already promised to him, which, you know, seems counterintuitive, but that's what he's doing. And because of that, because of this sin, trying to be in charge, to be in God's place, we've seen that there's been devastating consequences. Um, he has, at this point in our story, been gone, fled from his home for many years. Uh, he had to cheese it out of there because uh, he tried to, or he did, he, was, he took his father's blessing, Isaac's blessing, which was, should have gone to Esau, by tricking Isaac. He, he and his mother, they tricked his brother and his father, and Esau was, you know, you know angry. And so Isaac, uh, Jacob had to get out of town, he had to get out of Dodge. And so he comes to his uncle Laban's place, and he says, hey, I want to work for you, and oh, by the way, I really like your daughter Rachel. And he lets that, that desire twist inside of him and turn to idolatry. And because of that, he became indentured for seven years, right, um, to his uncle Laban. And then when he finally does get to marry Rachel, uh, he gets out-Jacobed by his uncle. He gets, you know, tricked. Laban switch, does a switcheroo, and, you know, Jacob marries Leah. But, you know, he's a go-getter. He doesn't let that stop him. He's like, I'm going to make it marry Rachel anyway. Go ahead and sign me up for another seven years. Let's get this show on the road. And so, right now, as we find Jacob in our story, and Rachel and Leah as well, they're all three married, and things are not going well. So, please open your Bibles and follow along with me as I read today from the very Word of God. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, 
And she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. She called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her, so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me, and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Rachel's, Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Silpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, it is, a small, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes as, as, as well or also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her Dinah, her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. <laughs> All right, so that's fun, right? So uh, that's a lot to take in. Uh, and if you were here with us last week, uh, you may have noticed that uh, we're retreading a little bit of narrative ground with the, the, fir- the last few verses of chapter 29. And uh, even more of you might be wondering, what is going on? Why is this even here in the Bible? Um, I know that a few months ago, when I uh, start, first started studying the Scripture, you know, first I was super excited, and then I was confused, and then I was excited again. Um, and to be honest, it took me a, whole, a long time to really wrap my brain around this passage and what it's showing us about God. 
Uh, but recently, uh, I was listening to a podcast that I enjoy, and they interviewed an Old Testament scholar that I really respect. And uh, that, that scholar had a little bit of advice for reading the Bible, and, uh, and it's, it's true. Um, and that advice, to sum it up, is uh, the Bible was written for you, not to you. And I think that reminder um, for us today is, is, is really true, and it will be helpful, because uh, once we place this section of Scripture, this narrative, in its right place, within the context, not just of Genesis, but the whole story of the Bible, we're going to see that this is God reminding us of his good work and how that leads to salvation in Jesus. All right, we just might need to work a little bit, you know, work with me a little bit here to fully grasp the significance, because again, it was written to some ancient Israelites, and we're not them. Um, So, you know, to that. This story would have been really important to an ancient Israelite. It would show them the origin of their tribe, like their place in the context of history, their family, why they are named who they are. Um, And that, you know, might not initially seem relevant to a whole bunch of folks sitting here thousands of years later, looking at their watch, wondering what they're going to get at Bojangles. But um, if you zoom out and you look at this section You'll notice something interesting. So Jacob's story, there's steps to it that are mirrored on either side with this, this section of Scripture right smack dab in the middle. And what the author is trying to tell us here, what Moses is trying to tell us when he put this together is that this section of Jacob's story is the most important. It's the thing that he wants us to really pay attention to. And which is really interesting because Jacob like, is not even in this story that much. He's in it like twice, Right? So there's a lot of things happening, so let's just kind of dive into it, and let's get started with, uh, with Leah. And the main thing that I want us to, the main point of today's scripture that I want us to really pay attention to, the main truth that will play out uh, through this is that God moves directly in the lives, not only of us, right, but directly in the lives of his people to fulfill his promises and to show his glory and his good character as he does it. So let's look. Again, chapter 29, let's start with verse 31, right? Um, Last week, Brian showed us how Leah's misplaced idolatry and hope for her husband mirrored Jacob's idolatry, right? Mirrored Jacob's idolatry for Rachel. And so I'm not really going to cover anything different or new than what he covered in his sermon on these scriptures, but it's, it's really important for us to go ahead and set the stage and look at where Leah's heart is, right? So... Our translation here is going to show, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. All right, so that word hated is what our translation in the ESV has. Maybe some of you have a little bit different translation, but there's a little bit more nuance in the Hebrew. It really means loved less. She was, even though she was married first, she was loved less. She was less valued by Jacob. And this really isn't going to change for Leah. It's really going to kind of characterize a lot of, you know, her action. And we know that this affects her because we can see it playing out in the way she names her sons, especially the first three, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. These names tell us a lot about Leah's heart and would inform, you know, anyone who heard those names what's going on. Right? When you name your son Reuben, basically in Hebrew it says, look, a son, you know, everyone in the community 
is going to be drawn to the fact that the less loved wife had a son first and not the cherished wife, Rachel. I mean, Rachel would be super cognizant of this fact. You know, her sister's just saying, hey, look, a son, you know, a hundred times a day. Um, And this would be a big deal in their culture because the inheritance would pass through Reuben, like a large majority of Jacob's inheritance. Simeon's name means something similar, but Levi's name, I thought, was really telling of um, Leah's heart posture. Because it sounds a lot like the word for attachment in Hebrew. It basically like, hey, maybe now my husband will love me just because I have these three sons. And in, in these three sons, born over at least a few years for Leah, we see that in Scripture, God does recognize, or Leah does recognize God's role as the author of life here. But her heart is primarily focused on her husband. She's not loving the giver of good gifts, but a created being, her husband. She's trying to seek her identity in her husband. And this is such a, like a, a, par- a, you know, a convicting parallel for my own sin pattern in my own life. How many times I recognize that God's the source of good things, he's sovereign, he gives good gifts, but I forget it, and I try to seek my own meaning, my own satisfaction elsewhere, right? But I'm often called back to Jesus because he's, he's graceful with me, just like Leah here, right? With Judah, we see a little bit of a change. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. And it's appropriate that with Judah, her primary action would be to praise God. I mean, anytime God gives good gifts, we're to praise him. But the author is calling our attention because Judah and his descendants would play a really important role in God's plan, a really important part of the story moving forward in the Bible. It's all part of God's plan is God will choose to use Judah's descendants to continue to fulfill his covenant promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And I wish that I could just end today's sermon and be like, yep, great, Leah, faithful for the whole rest of her life, worshipped God, raised her kids to be great people, they all worshipped God, but they're human and that's not how life goes, and we're human and, you know, we sometimes fail too. And so this isn't the end of this story, just the beginning, right? We have another sister, so let's look to Rachel. So off the bat, the first words we get of Rachel in the Bible, front and center, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. And she said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Her first words are an outcry. We, see, we hear her pain, we hear her suffering, and her sadness. But it's an outcry not to God, an outcry to Jacob in place of God. The crushing weight of being put in God's throne does only one thing for Rachel and Jacob here, and that makes Jacob angry. And so Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Church, I mean, Jacob speaks the truth here, right? He's not God. He's not the author of, and source of life. But he doesn't speak this truth in any type of graceful way to gently bring her 
you know, his, his wife, Rachel, back to that knowledge and that grace in God. No, he uses it as a hammer, right? He hurts his wife with this. He's trying to put her in her place, right? And Rachel's response to her husband's anger isn't to turn away from her sin, but to delve deeper into sin. And so we see a, a, a story that's really familiar to us if you were you know, studying with us several months ago with Abraham and Sarah, right? Rachel offers up her servant, Bilhah, just as Sarah had offered up her servant, Hagar. Rachel here is trying to take matters into her own hands. And instead of pointing his wife to God, Jacob's just like, yep, great, let's do it. This is a great idea. This is going to end super well. And so he goes along for the ride, and just like his grandfather, Abraham, and two sons are born, Dan and Naphtali. And these names are also, just like with Leah, great indicators of where Rachel's heart was. So in verse 6 of chapter 30, Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. Dan sounds like the Hebrew for vindicated, right? Rachel's declaring to us and to all who could hear that she has been vindicated, justified before God with the birth of Dan through her servant. Um, Naphtali also, right, has a meaning that's also reminiscent of justification and victory. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. One of the uh, commentators that I was studying uh, as I was preparing for today's sermon pointed out to me something that's not readily available or inherent to us if you, unless you're reading this in Hebrew. Um, but the name Naphtali, when you situate it within the rest of the sentence, there's an undertone that when Rachel claims victory, she's not just claiming victory over Leah, but because Leah was supported by God, Rachel's actually claiming victory over God and Leah. Right? She is basically declaring that she has wrestled with God and men, and she has prevailed. Right? Her plan. She has bested her sister and God with this adoption scheme. Now, going back to previous themes with Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, we know from that story that that plan didn't bring fruit and joy in life, and this story doesn't bring fruit and joy in life either. You know, just like Sarah, Rachel has this idolatry problem, and her scheme does not bring her peace. Rachel's idolatry problems, similar to but slightly different than Leah's, because Rachel already has the love of her husband. What Rachel wants is the recognition and the love of the community. Because as Jacob's wife that hasn't bore any children yet, at this time she probably was viewed as less valuable to the community at large. And it would be Leah who would be viewed as the matriarch of the family. And so Rachel might be the most cherished by Jacob, but she's not the most valued by the people writ large. And so she continues to strive, and this is going to play out even more, right? Because now we have both sisters entering into a competition. Leah sees in these next few verses, hey, Rachel's starting to catch up. I need to stay on top. You know, I need to keep that scoreboard with my name on top in this game. And so Perhaps goaded by Rachel, right? Leah, too, would offer her own servant. 
She responds to her sister's sin with her own sin. She doesn't go to God. She says, hey, check it out, Jacob. Here's Zilpah. Right? Why don't you go ahead and sleep with her too? And Jacob's like, yep, great, let's do it. Right? And so more sons would be born, Gad and Asher. And let's look at Leah's response. Good fortune has come, so she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. Leah's She's joyful. She's over the moon. She's like, this, this plan worked great. I am still on top. Take that, Rachel. Um, but look at where she's focusing her joy. It's not on her relationship with God. It's with what other people say about her. It's her role in the community, right? And now what follows is probably, now that we're fully in this downward spiral to the, bo- spiral to the bottom We're going to look at this episode with the mandrakes and see how sin, once running rampant in our lives, in our marriages, in our interactions with other people, really just takes it to the utmost limit of devastation, right? Leah's son Reuben collected some mandrakes, right? Now, at the time, this plant was thought to have medicinal properties that would promote fertility. Now, remember, Rachel's never had a son or any child, a son or a daughter, And Leah, at this point, has stopped giving children, hence the whole, hey, here's my servant, have at it, Jacob, episode, right? And so both women would have seen these mandrakes as really valuable, especially since they were kind of rare in this part of the world at the time. And so Rachel asks Leah, hey, can I have some of the mandrakes your son, you know, gathered? And Leah's response is just totally spiteful. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Pretty interesting, considering she actually was the one that took away Rachel's husband, but, you know, whatever. Um, Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. So Rachel and Leah now have effectively reduced their marital relationship, their bed, as a stock exchange, their sex as a currency, and now their marriage isn't a marriage grounded in love and faithfulness to God, but it's a commodity, right? They've commoditized and objectified themselves to get what they want. We've reached the bottom of the barrel, folks. When humans are no longer treated as humans, that's sin taking it to the utmost, right? But out of this arrangement, Leah once again gives birth and Issachar is born. And his name would be a reminder of uh, Leah's previous uh, arrangement with her servant. And then following Issachar is Zebulon. And Zebulon's meaning um, is just kind of this final reminder of where Leah is at this point. God has endowed me with a good endowment. She's still recognizing God is the source of life. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. Leah still is hoping after her husband's recognition, right? She's only playing half, giving half credit to God. She's not focusing on the good gifts of God. And her last, her last child, Dinah, and we see kind of unfortunate truth also of this culture. You see, at the time, inheritance 
and lineage passed through the male children only. And so that's partly why we don't get a meaning for Dinah's name. Uh, most commentators believe that uh, the only reason she's been put into this story to begin with is because later on in a couple of weeks in Genesis chapter 34, there's going to be a real tragic story that involves her. And so the author is situating her as being a sister to her brothers, right? Another interesting note about this passage that I want to address before I move on, um, this particular passage on the mandrakes, right? And I want to address it very carefully. This text is not about chastising Rachel for seeking what at the time would be considered medical assistance to conceive. Infertility is a tragic thing. It's a hard thing. It's existed and afflicted humans for a long, long time. And it's something some of us here today have dealt with and walked through in heartbreak. But this passage isn't about the actions Rachel's taking. It's more about what Rachel, Leah, and Jacob value in their hearts. That's what this passage is pointing out to us, and it's giving us, hey, in parallel to what they value, here's something better. This passage is about our hearts, too, where our hope lies, in response to all of the heartache and tragedy that's out here in the world. And so at the end of this passage, we come full circle, and now it's Rachel She's kind of come to the end of herself. In chapter 30, verse 22, we have, Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. We see that Rachel has finally come before her father, before God, and prayed, because if she hadn't, then God wouldn't have listened. You know, that's the implication here. Her heart cries out, finally, not for Jacob, or for a position, but for God. And Joseph is born of this. And Joseph will take an important role in later chapters to save his family. God will use Joseph to save his family, because Joseph's not super great either at times. Um, but God will use him so that the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob continue. And so with that, let's take a look at this whole you know, story now kind of in context. right? Because we could be forgiven for thinking that Leah and Rachel are the main characters here. After all, they're doing a majority of the things that I just talked about. But look again. Like, do any of the things that they do, any of the actions they take, bring satisfaction? They bring joy? They bring happiness? Do any of their plans result in good fruit? Last week, Brian did an excellent job of showing what happens when idolatry rules our hearts. How mistaken worship creates devastation in our lives, how it poisons everything we do. This week, we also see how idolatry is intrinsically connected to what we think our identity should be. We have an enduring reminder of Leah's misplaced worship in the names of her sons. I mean, she named her sons things like, hey, look, a son, or hey, dude, you know, pay attention to me, right? Like, that's a pretty enduring reminder for everyone around. And None of this, right, none of this competition for honor between Rachel and Leah, right, it was addressed by Jacob. He just let it happen. He was complicit in it. It's this spiral of sin and devastation. The struggle to be the most valued and its inherent idolatry has come to rule the lives of Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. 
So I imagine right now you're like, man, this is just darkness upon darkness upon darkness. When is trade getting to anything good, any good news? Well, if we were to focus on Rachel and Leah and Jacob, we wouldn't see any, right? If we focus on these humans, um, then it's just going to be that darkness, which is why I'm so encouraged that they're not the main character in today's passage. Today's scripture is all about God, right? God is still faithful to his promise through this family, no matter what they're doing. This is a reminder, and it would be an enduring reminder to the entire nation of Israel, all through the Bible, time and time again, God holds up his end of the bargain. The people of Israel in each generation are reminded through Scripture and through God's action. God has promised that we will be fruitful, we will multiply, that we'll have land and blessing. And through that land and blessing, we will bless others. And time and time again, God delivers, right? And this scripture is showing us the same thing today. The second thing that this scripture is showing us today is that God isn't aloof. He isn't far from us. He's near. Let's look again, right? Remember, God saw Leah, and he remembered and listened to Rachel. God is with both women when they are in their worst, in their lowest, in their sin, whenever their hearts are low. But we see that this sin does not stop God from fulfilling his promise to Jacob's family. And church, I can't tell you why Leah had a more children, biological children at least, than Rachel. But we see that both women are met by God. They're both met in their sin, and he works, right? When God acts to fulfill his promise in accordance with his character, we can see that he is close to us, not far away. And it's a call for us to trust in the things that he says that he's going to do. God's action is faithful, and as often is the case, it's done in unexpected ways, right? Remember how I said that Judah was going to be really important. If you were to turn to Matthew chapter 1, and uh, in the two-hour version of my sermon, we would do that, but we don't have that right today, um, then you would see a direct line that comes from Abraham, a few pages this way, all the way to Jesus, Right? God has chosen to use Judah, born even when Leah was in the midst of her sin. God has chosen to use Judah to bless the nation, to fulfill his promise. And Jesus, it's through the tribe of Judah that we get to Jesus. Jesus' life and ministry is exemplified by God's closeness and his purposeful blessing, his purposeful work. Let's look at an example of this. It's my favorite example. So if you were to turn to John chapter 4, I think it's going to come up there. I'm not sure. Um, but Jesus was traveling, and he traveled to Samaria to visit a woman at a well. Another sinner, just like Leah and Rachel, just like any of us in this room. Now, there was no need for Jesus to take this path on this trip in particular. There were other ways to go, and often Jews would go other different ways. They would actively avoid Samaria due to some, you know, some beef that it had for, you know, a long time. But he went there on purpose, with a purpose, to meet this woman in particular. And he stops and he talks with her. And he listens and he hears. And he confronts her sin, not with a hammer, but with love. And unlike Jacob, he offers something. He offers something that no one else can offer. It's a life-giving truth. 
Let's look in verse 13 and 14. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's something only Jesus can do. That's Jesus reaching out in history and time. That's God fulfilling his promise, not just to the people of Israel, but outside the people of Israel. That's an offer he makes to all of us. Church, the application for the text today isn't nothing flashy, right? It's just a call for us to respond to God's offer, to God's promise. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, right? When I'm lost in my darkest moments, chasing satisfaction in this world, I never find peace. When I try to identify myself with other people's honor or things that I build, I don't find hope. I'm always disappointed. I'm drinking earthly water. So church, where are you finding your hope today? Where are you drinking earthly water? Are you seeking your worth in another person? A spouse, a husband, a child, a coworker, or a boss? Maybe you have a whole bunch of people online that pay attention to you, and that's where you're trying to define yourself. Some of you might be in some of your darkest times right now, too. And maybe not. Maybe you wouldn't describe where you are in life as dark particularly, but is there joy in it? You have hope. Whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, this passage today is for you. God is calling you to look to his action and to trust that his promise of blessing is going to be fulfilled. So today we see God keeping that promise. And if I had six hours to go through from this point all the way through the Old Testament to Jesus, I would show you that same story again and again and again. God draws close and works purposefully despite all of our sin. He does it to do his work. Through the whole story of the Bible, we see that it leads through this to Jesus. God himself, who entered history, part of the line of Judah, and fulfills prophecy and promise to bring the blessing to all of us. He does this through his life and his death and his resurrection. In Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, Paul preaches that if we follow Jesus, we are freed from our sin. And folks, Jesus' blessing, his work, doesn't just stop there. If we were to look into Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 28, we would see that right now, all of us, even as all of us here are sitting in these seats, he is right there by the throne of power, interceding on our behalf as the highest priest, right? We'd see that in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, that when we fail, when we stumble, he is up there advocating. He's the greatest advocate, advocating for all of you, saying, no, they are mine, as long as you call him king. The church, Jesus is the wellspring of life. He is the blessing. This is a call for us to recognize that, a call for us to hear that in God's hand. Over the last few weeks, Jacob and Ryan have just done an amazing job showing us that God doesn't need our sin to do his work. If any of these people would have just followed God, he still would have done the same things. He still would have been, you know, made Jacob's line fruitful. He still would have worked. He still would have brought blessing. He didn't need 
Jacob and Leah and Rachel to do any of this stuff, right? When we are, you know, beholden to our idols, it brings us pain, but it doesn't stop God from working, right? This week, all of these themes find their center in this, in the lives of Jacob and our family. And we can trust that God is going to keep his promise. Because when Jesus came to earth, when he came through that line of Judah to bless all of us, he promised us eternal life. He said, if you follow me, I will give you eternal life. And I'm going to prove it to you because I'm going to go up on this tree over here of my own free will, and I'm going to let the world nail me up there, and I'm going to let the world kill me. And in three days, all that sin and darkness that I've gathered, I'm just going to shatter all of it. I'm going to walk out of this tomb, and I'm going to be alive. I'm going to give that life to you. I'm going to give that life to you, and I'm going to adopt you into my family. I'm going to call you my own. All you have to do is take my hand as I do this. And he did it, church. We can trust in this promise because he did it. He did the thing that he said he's going to do. He came close to us as a human, and he's close to us even now as our intercessor, our advocate. Jesus is the eternal king. He sits on an eternal throne. Nothing can bind him. There is no power in this universe that limits what he can and can't do, how close or how far away he is. He is right here next to you right now. He's preaching to your heart. He's offering you grace. He's offering you truth. He's offering a promise that he has fulfilled time and time again. You just have to trust it. You just have to believe it. Church, in a little bit, we're going to celebrate that belief when people come and get in this horse trough. They get baptized, and it's going to be amazing. So join me in prayer. And then join me as we celebrate God's great promise brought to us today in these baptisms. Father God, we thank you so much for your work in the life of Jesus. We thank you so much for the power of your spirit that continues to grace us, to encourage us, to build us up as a church, as you use us for your good purpose. We thank you so much for the people about to get baptized today. Lord, in all humbleness, we ask that you continue to love and forgive us for our sin when we stumble and fall and to remind us eternally that you keep your promises and that you love us for all time. In the name I pray, amen.